0: Our family of origins all have these intergenerational trauma things that have been passed down or, like, limiting beliefs or, like, family beliefs or whatever that, that don't actually mesh with who we are. We just believe them because someone has layered those beliefs on top of us. And I believed that, like, there I could only be a girl. Like, I remember sitting on my stairs with my grandma being like, but I just want to be a boy and her being like sorry sweetheart this is just your lot in life like this is what you got and it just being like this was this thing i had to accept
1: that was nick north and you're listening to real talk radio with nicole antoinette episode 161 welcome to real talk radio with nicole antoinette that's me the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human we'll be diving into the full episode in a few minutes But before that, I have three quick things that I want to share with you. The first is the promise that my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing. Telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You're great. And we're all just doing the best we can. That's what I believe. The next thing I want to share is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language. And we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My personal hope is that these conversations make you feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. I think that's super important. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to share before we get to today's episode is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast, because these honest conversations are 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. This kind of tangible financial support, that's what allows me to make the show. And it also pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That's me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests. And a few months ago, our community met the funding goal to make that happen. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time, with higher rates always being paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show, for that matter, I guess, Um, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world of honest conversations where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Sometimes the live events and retreats actually get sold out within the Patreon community, so if you're interested in that, that is a good place to be. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. If you go over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, that's where we do our live Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. Those are perhaps one of my favorite things uh, that we do in the Patreon community. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Nick North. Nick is a husband, a dad to five kids, and a branding strategist. He also has a history of living as a woman, a wife, a mom, a photographer, a corporate type, and even an emergency medical responder. When he embraced his identity and came out as transgender, he realized just how much gender affects the way we think, talk, sell, and function. He now speaks from his experience on both sides of the gender coin, empowering folks of all genders to live authentically and powerfully, while also making more money following their passion and their gut. In this episode, Nick tells honest stories of how his experience of being socialized and living as a woman for 30 years makes him a better man. He goes into detail about so many important things, such as some of the specific tools that he and his wife have learned in therapy to strengthen their relationship, why they created a new last name together, plus the value of questioning the things that we're socialized to believe are true. Nick talks about his blended family, his divorce from a previous partner, the complicated experience of having top surgery in 2018, and so much more. It was an absolute delight to have Nick on the show, and I hope that you love getting to know him as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Okay, we are good to go. Nick, welcome to the show. hello. Hello. So you are switching to an earlier morning schedule I saw. Tell me how that's going for you.
0: So far, I mostly hate it mixed with like moments of deep gratitude for it. So I realized that like every day I was going to bed and I was like, I am so behind. How am I going to get caught up? But then I also noticed that like my genius working time whenever I, I would give it to myself would be like, if I got up really early and just worked in like the quiet of the dark that like I could get accomplished three times the amount of work that I would get accomplished in like a regular work day in like two hours. And so I said, fuck it, I'm going to do it. And here I am. I have been up at earlier than 6am all the days this week. So
1: definitely a transition. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I work better in the morning too. And yet I find like ever since working for myself, I don't know, I have this like weird resistance to setting an alarm clock. I don't know if I feel like I shouldn't have to do that. One of the reasons that I want to work for myself is so I can, you know, et cetera, et cetera, my own schedule. And yet I get better work done early in the morning. It sounds like you do too. So maybe I just have to (laughs) like reconcile that.
0: Right. It's that like, I don't want this to be true. I really, really don't. Um, But it is, I think. So the other day though, I got up at 5.30 and at 5.32, my, my five-year-old came up the stairs and at 5.37, my four-year-old came down the stairs and I was like, no, you've stolen the best part of my – I got up for nothing. <laughs>
1: no one's allowed to talk to me until <laughs> I've had my work exactly.
0: time. Exactly. I'm like, don't you know? do you know?
1: So talk me through a typical day in your household
0: our house is kind of crazy. We have five children. Um, so I get up at 530. Now, this is my that's what I do. Now I get up at 530. And I work quietly by myself until seven. And then that's usually when all the kids get up. And um, I get up with them. Uh, my wife sleeps. This is this one of these arrangements we have that everyone thinks is crazy. But I am a morning person and she is not like it physically pains her to get up in the morning. And she does better if she gets up like slowly in journals with tea and like her whole day is better that way and so when we first were doing things we were like we're both at home we're gonna like get up together and do it together um and then it turned out that like every fight we ever had was like in the car after drop off in the morning because she was just so miserable and i was like really happy in the morning and she resented me for being happy and i resented her for being miserable and we were like having all these stupid petty fights and so now i get up with the kids and send them off all- to school and take them to daycare and do all the things. And then I start work. And right before I start work, I wake her up with tea. And everything in our marriage is better. So yeah. Isn't it
1: wild how like one thing, making one change intentionally can be a domino for so many other things like feeling better?
0: Right? Like I'm like, everything in our marriage is better with that one change. And people look at us like, I can't believe that like you let your husband get up and take the kids to school and things. And, like, then what happens is, like, at the school drop-off line, I'm, like, the most desirable man on the planet because I am the only dad there with five kids in tow without a mom in sight. Their shoes match. They're all wearing the proper clothes. They, like, you know, like, I did it, and I did it well, and, like, no one expects that. And so I am, like, king among men.
1: I love it. I love it. I also like this idea of... You know, whether it's, you know, alone with your in your own life or with your partner or I guess like whoever else is involved in your life to actually kind of have those conversations that center around a question that I love, which is like, what would have to be true for you to feel awesome about this, which it sounds like is a version of what the two of you did. Like, okay, for us to feel like more awesome about the morning, what would have to be true for you? What would have to be true for me? And to actually give yourself permission to make changes according to what you need.
0: Right? Rather than what everyone else is, like, guilting my wife into, like, they're, like, I can't believe that, like, you just sleep. And she, like, gets all this, like, people are trying to shame her about it. And I'm just, like, forget that noise. Like, it works for us, A. And B, like, we have the counter swing. I, in the evenings, am, like, done. So I cook dinner because I'm the better cook. um, And she, but once dinner is over, I'm, like, peace out. I'm gone. I, you know, I help with, like, getting the bath ready and like getting the kids to bed. But outside of that, like cleanup is her responsibility and she packs lunches for the next day and I have no part in it. Like come once the kids are in bed, I am off for the evening. I don't have to do anything. So we sort of balance out our evenings for our mornings.
1: Yeah. I mean, and again, it's like, it's funny how people have so many opinions on the way that other folks do their life. And like what matters is that it works for the two of you. I remember years and years ago, I read this article. It was like one of those listicles on, you know, mm-hmm. 15 lessons I learned from being married for 15 years or whatever it was, but they were actually like not just silly throwaway things and one of the things that was on that list that um I think about all the time was this idea that like you and your partner are on a team and no one else has to understand the team's rules and no one else gets to be on the team, right? This idea that like it doesn't actually matter what anybody else thinks if it works mm-hmm. for the two of you. Totally. Yeah. I love that. So speaking of your family, you recently chose a new last name for your family. Tell me that story.
0: Yeah. So we're feminists in our house. And um, when we got married, we were like, well, what are we going to do? And Catherine's name before was kind which no one can say or spell or do anything with. And my name before was MacArthur, and it is my ex-husband's last name. It and I took his name. And so there was like, well, okay, I don't really feel connected necessarily to my last name. And we she didn't she feels like connected to her family and her last name, but she also felt like, wouldn't it be nice to like, she's like, for the first time in my life, I have this desire to have the same name as the person that is like my partner. And but we're both feminists. We were like, well, what are we gonna do? And so we were like, what if we just created our own last name? And so we chose a name that felt important to us for different a bunch of different reasons. And we were like, fuck it, let's do it. And so we changed um our last name to North.
1: How did you settle on that name?
0: So for me, I my grandfather was Sammy, which is like a like a nomadic Swedish uh like indigenous people. And he immigrated to Canada when he was 16. And they changed his last name from Nordivist to Nord, which means north. And so that felt like interesting and exciting for me. And we felt like true north. And like, I moved Catherine from America up north to Canada here uh, to the promised land for the moment. Um, And so it just sort of like felt like, oh, for all these different reasons, it just felt right.
1: I love that. I love the idea of I don't know choosing like choo- like language matters, right? Words matter. Being mm-hmm. able to choose your name for yourself,
0: right? Because like our our parents don't necessarily define us, and the birth name that they were given doesn't define us. And the fact that like you know my mom took my dad's last name, and he his mom like I don't know like the whole thing just it doesn't define who we are. It really doesn't mean anything to me at all, like my last name before didn't mean anything to me at all. And so having something that does mean something feels important. Um, and we didn't change our kids' last names because we wanted to give them an extra level of privacy considering we live so publicly on the internet.
1: Interesting. So the two of you changed your last names, but not for the kids.
0: Yeah. And we also, they, they have other birth parents as well. And, um, or like other parents in general. Uh, And so it was like a complicated thing. So we felt like they they could have the choice to just because we chose our last name doesn't mean that like they're autonomous people as well. And so if at 18 they want to change their last name, then we'll absolutely support that and pay for it or whatever. But until they have the ability to like actually make an informed choice on it, it felt like it wasn't ours to make. And we only use our kids middle names on the internet currently. And so giving only using their middle names with North sort of gives that little bit of like mm, separation.
1: Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my questions. I don't have kids, so don't really know what it's like to navigate being, you know, like really public online. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think at this point, lots of folks are on social media, but people who just use it for, you know, maybe personal reasons and less like a branding business type of thing, you know, they'll have private accounts or it's they only have like friends and family. Right. And so I think that's a little bit different. But given what the two of you do and how public you are, yeah, that was something that I was going to ask is how like the customer, the conversations that you two have about like what to share about the kids and like at what age does it become like more of their choice
0: yeah as the older ones now can say whether they want it shared or not we ask them we're like can I may I share this photo of you and they see it and they approve it or not and we if they don't want it that's totally acceptable as well like it's there we my body my rules we say it all the time and so they they get to have that as well the only time that that doesn't take precedence or like that doesn't work that way is that like if it's the if it's like a birthday party or we're like at a public thing and we're clearly taking photos then they they can choose to not be there or they can choose to be in the photos and they're gonna go they don't have say in it because it's just like if you were to go to a conference you don't actually have say with what happens if you're in the real world if you're in a public place you don't really have say of what happens with those images and so we actually sort of think of it as like training them sort of for the real world. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that totally makes sense. You know, given that, you know, there are going to be some situations later on where they can give a yes or no, you know, and then Mm -hmm. situations where they can't. Yeah.
0: Right. Like I care about when they're in high school and they're at a public thing and they do something stupid or they're in college and they're at a public thing and they do something stupid and they're like, oh, well, my parents taught me that I have consent over what photos are shared. So I'd like that back, please. And that actually isn't the law in a lot of public places. So they're really, I feel like, setting them up to have complete autonomy is sort of setting them up to have no in the same amount of failure as having no autonomy.
1: I mean, yeah, these are serious lessons to teach four and five year olds. I'm into this,
0: (laughs) right? I'm we're all about it. I mean, our oldest kid is 12. So she's more it's more happening than, you know, it's more realistic, I guess, in the future for her. But yeah,
1: tell me about the documentary that you've been working on.
0: Yeah, we are making a documentary. So we won a $50,000 grant to tell us the story of our family um, in 20 minutes or less. So it's been kind of insane. Um, It turns out that making a documentary for $50,000 seems like not a hard task. But when you aren't filmmakers – who can shoot it yourself it's a little more complicated so we thought like it was going to be this really awesome thing where it was going to be like yeah we were going to make this documentary and we could make a killer documentary for 50k which i still we we can and will but it was that thing where like we realized when we started to go to the stuff that like all the other people making their documentaries for 50k are filmmakers who don't have to hire out like camera crew or the director or a bunch of things so it's been like a, a huge steep learning curve because we're not filmmakers Um it's kind of crazy that they gave us the money based on our store like just because we had an idea Um so it's been this like super intense wonderful learning curve while also being like emotionally vulnerable and like physically vulnerable because there are people following you around with cameras for a long time but yeah we also felt it was important like it's called just another uh, beautiful family and it is just about being a queer family um it's about me being transgender and the some of the effects that that has on our family and how people assume that like you meet a trans person and the narrative is like they're marginalized and they probably haven't had the same opportunity as other people and they have a lot of mental health issues possibly and like I don't know. The, the biggest narrative of trans people is like the trans woman who ends up murdered on CSI. Like that is the most common narrative in the media. And so we wanted to counteract that and tell a story about just like a really normal suburban family who also happens to have this other thing about them. And it doesn't really change anything, even though it does.
1: What are you hoping that people will take from it?
0: I think that the biggest thing is that like, I look at other trans people and I hope that they take from it that like life can be really, really beautiful, even though it is brutal at times uh, being trans in this world. And I hope that like your cisgendered, so your people that match the gender they were assigned at birth, I hope that those people will see it and go like, oh, there's really nothing so scary to worry about here, like they don't need to be banned from the military. like they're not trying to use the bathroom that they identify with to do anything other than pee without being beat up um like they're just they're they're really not that scary of a people they're just like me they're just like their fan like my family looks just like every other family on the quiet cul-de-sac that i live on you know like we don't look any different we just have this extra secret thing under the surface
1: Yeah. So this, I think, would be an awesome time for you to tell more of your, I guess, like family's origin story, if we can call it that. I know you wrote about this in 2016 in a post called A Very Full Life, which I will link to in the show notes. But can you tell that story?
0: Uh, Yeah, I, I was, I grew up in you know, a place called Oshawa, Ontario. It's they're they're real famous right now because the GM plant is shutting down, and so now they're like, "What? Who will w- live here and work here and whatnot?" Uh, I grew up in like this town outside of out of Toronto, and I uh, was like just a happy kid, and I I rem- don't remember a ton of my childhood, but I remember like a lot of very important moments where I realized that I wasn't a boy. And realized that, like, wait, why couldn't I just wear Ninja Turtle underwear? And why couldn't I – why did I have to wear a dress? Why couldn't I wear a suit to my dad's second wedding? And, like, why couldn't I just be a boy? And the answer was, like, well, you just couldn't. And then then in high school I found Jesus out of some sort of weird thing, and I – you know, did the whole like, well, I definitely can't be gay because that's not good. But I recognize now that like all of my best friends in elementary school and high school and all of those places were actually just like people that I was super in love with. And then they'd get a boyfriend and then I'd be a jackass and resentful and our friendship would fall apart. And then I would fall in love with my next best friend and like carry on. But I sort of hadn't, it was like all under the surface that I should have put the dots together. But like there was so much that like that just wasn't okay, that I just didn't. And Mm -hmm. so instead, I married my best friend and we actually got married and left the church sort of around the same time and moved out to Alberta and like started a new life out here and had children. And I was like. I'm going to do this girl thing. I am going to succeed at it. And like I created a really good life that I should have been incredibly happy with. And after my fourth kid, I was not happy. I was – it was like every time I would have a baby, it would like fill this hole and I would be happier for a longer period of time. And then it would slowly fade and then I would would fill this hole again. And I had this beautiful family and a big house and a nice shiny new car and all the things. And I had a great husband who like – we're still really good friends to this day um it it was messy in the middle there as can be but i had this really beautiful life and i was incredibly unhappy and i couldn't figure out why and then i fell in love with my wife and was like oh it's because i am queer i'm a lesbian vaginas are amazing this (laughs) is the best thing that's ever happened and like i had to take my my life apart and in the process of dismantling my life I sort of realized that I actually like deep, deep under the layers of things that I had piled on top that I wasn't who I thought I was. And so, you know, the more that I was with Catherine, the more that I was allowed to like embrace my masculinity and it was celebrated rather than like uh, ashamed. I sort of like came into my own and, and was, and was like sort of really questioning a lot of like who I was and like that I didn't feel like a woman and I had never – and like she was like – well, I mean I don't feel like a woman – very womanly sometimes. I'm not all feminine. Everyone has a balance of feminine and masculine. But it it was more than that for me. It was that like, no, when I look in the mirror, I feel like – like when I look back at pictures of myself in a dress and things like that, I look and I'm like, oh, it was like a gorilla in like a costume. And that's the way that I see it. Other people look and go, oh, you were a beautiful woman. Like, what are you talking about? Like, but I even still can only look at it like subjectively rather than objectively. And I'm like, no, I'm like, you dressed a dog up in a clown outfit or like you've put an animal into some like, I don't know. It just it didn't it, di- it really didn't fit. And the more that I was honest about that, like I, it just sort of unfurled. And I had to admit that, like, oh, I'm actually a man. And so I have to do something about that.
1: Yeah. So I'm interested in what you said about, um, you know, uh, being in this relationship with Catherine and it helping you peel back the layers of, like, truth that ha- – I think you said, like, stuff had – a lot of stuff had been piled on top of it. Mm-hmm. I think – that's relatable for a lot of, you know, things that are either uncomfortable or we don't want to deal with them or we've been socialized. That's, like, not an okay thing to think or feel, whatever it is for different folks. Like, I think that's a really common thing of, like, well, just, like, shove a bunch of shit on top of it and, like, pretend that it is not there, right? And then there is the inevitable process of, oh, actually, I have to deal with this. Like, a lot of that was my experience of getting sober, and which I know isn't yeah. the same, but there was a lot of, like, oh, okay. I mean, kind of. There's, like, something under here, you know?
0: <laughs> right? Like, I think that I just used, like – children and things instead of alcohol or drugs. I really don't think that like, I think that I really was the same techniques, just different tools, I guess, you know, like, uh, and I don't know. I think, I think that it is a relatable thing for everyone because we all, as our, like our family of origins all have these intergenerational trauma things that have been passed down or like limiting beliefs or like family beliefs or whatever that, that don't actually mesh with who we are. We just believe them because someone has layered those beliefs on top of us. And I believed that like there, I could only be a girl. Like I remember sitting on my stairs with my grandma being like, but I just want to be a boy and her being like, sorry, sweetheart, this is just your lot in life. Like, this is what you got. And it just being like, this was this thing I had to accept. And so I, I, and I don't like, I'm like, I remember these things in hindsight now, I didn't remember them along the way.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to hear some other things that you feel like you were socialized to believe.
0: Yeah, I was socialized to believe that like, well, A, we, were, we weren't we were rich. So like anyone that was rich was evil. Like there's a certain amount of like rich people are are terrible. And now I'm like, oh, no, like it's good to like, a, I I live like what I would have assumed was rich at that time was like middle class. Um, and so like anyone middle-class or above was evil. So I've, I've had to like deconstruct that concept as I, cause I think that honestly it was limiting how much money I made in my business for a fair amount of time. And I no longer believe that like I, our family lives a comfortable life, which is not like extravagant, but it also allows me to do all sorts of things that are better for the world with my money because I have it, you know, mm-hmm. I had to deal with all of that I had to deconstruct my belief about like what made a man a man and what made a man manly and like what was attractive in men and what made a woman a woman and like I just I think that I in finding my gender I had to deconstruct gender in a lot of ways and what what like our rules for gender were.
1: Okay. Yeah. I feel like I want you to talk about that for the next like 19 hours, which I know we don't have, but I'm super interested in hearing you get more specific when you said that you had to kind of unlearn or look at, you know, what you thought made a man, a man and a woman, a woman. Can you give some examples?
0: Yeah. Like, um, things like, I mean, a lot of it was like just these little things that I didn't even realize were happening. Like, I mean, we, we pay women differently than we pay men. I remember being like, when Catherine and I first started dating, being like, listen, babe, I know that you're this feminist. I'm not. I just, I don't identify with being a feminist. And she was like, I'm sorry, what? And I was like, yeah, like, I just think that it's like, why are we so angry? I was like, things are not that like, in Canada, at least, which was my blinders, to be perfectly honest. things Things are not as bad as it is there. We don't have to be so angry. People are not being treated like this like, pussy doesn't require her to grab back because our prime minister doesn't say dumb shit like that. Like, this is, it's all a lot for me, you know? And she was like, what are you talking about? And then I transitioned and I was like, people congratulate me on the good looks of my wife on a regular basis. She'll stand right beside me and they'll be like, oh, your wife is so beautiful. And I'm like, you should probably try telling her that. She's right there. Like, like I didn't make her that way. Like, that's her own person and self and, like, Sure, it's great to celebrate it, but she's also very smart and well-spoken. The number of times that, like, people ask my wife in, like, oh, what does your husband do versus, like, what do you do? Or the fact that, like, the bill comes to the rest, like at the restaurant and, like, she'll put her credit card out and they'll still hand the things to me to sign or put the code in or whatever. Or the fact that, like, I noticed working with clients that I went from working as when i was a woman my all of my clients were female i had like two male clients in like three years and now working as a man i would say it's a 50 50 split working with both people i realized that 90 percent of the time i am working with women to be ballsier to be bigger to take up more space and i'm working with men to shut up and let their clients actually be the the hero rather than themselves and to be more vulnerable and to have a soul and like, I'm just, I'm working literally on opposite things in the same direction.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. And your experience is like unique and wonderful about, I mean, having experienced the differences like you just described in the way it actually feels to be seen as a man versus seen as a woman.
0: Yeah. And I don't think that any man, I, I feel like we give men a hard time for not being able to empathize, but it's like asking fish how the water is doing, like truly the whole world is set up for default man and default man. um, There's an author called Grayson Perry and he wrote a book called uh, the fall of men. I believe it's called something like that. Uh, I should, I'll get that for sure for you. Um, But basically like he talks about how the world is set up for a default man that the cis straight white man who is, you know, six foot and 160 pounds, 170 pounds. That is what the world is set up for. And so like, The architecture in buildings are are set up to, like, appeal to the default man. The bathrooms are set up to appeal to the default man. He argues that, like, air conditioning is set up in buildings to work for default man because he wears a power suit and default woman has to wear a dress with heels and some sort of, like, shirt that leaves her sleeveless, like, and no pockets. So... Like literally every, every aspect of our world is created for male comfort. And when I stopped and looked at it and started realizing my experiences, I was like, my world is a lot more comfortable than my wife's. Like, I don't like all my pants have pockets, my pajama pants, my dress pants, my jeans, my sweatpants, all my pants have pockets. You know how hard that is in women's pants my life just got so much easier just on pants.
1: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's funny, but like I'm nodding of, yeah, I, I have one dress that has pockets and it's like the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a tiny thing, but yeah, I I'm interested. I mean, so, cause obviously like oh, the examples that you just gave are external things, right? Which is of mm-hmm. course super relevant. And I think equally relevant is, um, Like internal things, I remember something that you you wrote once about like being socialized as a woman, like had to do with um, like being made to make your personality smaller, right? To like rein things in and to be quieter. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm interested in what it was like, and I'm, I'm sure this is an ongoing thing of like unlearning something that's like, okay, well, it was literally decade after decade after decade of being socialized this way and then having to sort of confront that. And I don't know, there's like something in that that I'm really curious about.
0: Yeah. I think there's all these things. There's like, when I sit on the airplane, I still don't take both the arms rest because that's a dick move. But I notice that, like, I don't take any of the armrests then. And so, like, somehow I will still, like, if I'm between two cis men on an airplane or just beside a a cis guy in an airplane, I always default to giving him the armrest. If If I am in a meeting, I will always default still to listening to a man speak instead of myself. I will still allow a man to speak over me. I and there's often times where I'm waiting for that to happen and it doesn't. And so I'm like taken aback and I don't have. I'm not ready to like actually continue my my thought because I'm this is not how I've been trained to work. Even things like I still have a hard time telling my wife what I want for dinner. She is like a she was like an independent woman who was single for a bunch of years and a single mom. And so she's like, great at making decisions. And I was trained to like default to my male partner. And so literally like our rule with cooking dinner is that I will cook, but she has to decide what I cook because the stress of having to make that choice every day is too much for me.
1: Oh, I mean, and you, you're first married, you got married pretty young, right?
0: I got married at 19 and he was a great guy and is a great guy and is like way more hands-on than most men, I think, than what we like – Then the, like, stereotypical, like, guy, dad, who goes off to work his 50 hours a week and comes home and whatever, he was more involved than most. But I still trained him to let me do all the hard stuff and to carry the mental load. And, you know, it's one of the really great things about my relationship with my wife now is that we both carry mental loads. We actually have just decided where we're going to carry them because we we don't ever have that thing where like we're not appreciating what the other one does because we've both done it all. You know, like we both know how much goes into like thinking about packing lunches and the decisions and the whatever and the like managing the oil changes and like managing the budget and managing the calendar and like when things get cleaned. And in our house, I probably still do carry like 80% of the mental load and maybe 70 now and she probably carries 30. But that's like those are deliberate choices that that we're making.
1: Yeah. Can you give an example of what you mean when you say carrying the mental load? Like I, I can obviously relate to it. I'm just interested in um some examples for you.
0: Yeah. So for me, it's like um the kids like field trips and activities and getting them places. That's me. So like, you know, where someone like your, your partner might be like, yeah, we're gonna we're going to Uh, Let's take a beach day, for example. Your partner's like, we're going to go to the beach for the day with the kids. And you're like, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. And he's like, "Okay, we'll leave at 10. And you're like, great. And he's like, cool. I'll grab my bathing suit. I'm ready to go. And then you're like, oh, fuming with rage because he didn't think about the fact that like just his bathing suit is not the only thing that's required. There needs to be snacks. There needs to be sunscreen. There needs to – like the dog needs to be fed and and like let out and like exercised extra and put in her crate for th- for the afternoon. And you have to like make sure you have lunch plans and you – like has dinner been taken out for when you get home? And do the kids have their toys? And did you remember to part, fill the car with gas? And, like, there's all these extra things that you're thinking about to get to beach day and your partner, male, female, whoever – because it can be both genders, is like, cool, I got my shit, I'm good to go, and they haven't thought about any of that, and they haven't given you any of the credit for all the things that you did to make so make it so you could go to beach day.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm blanking on um, who the author of it was. I can find it and put it in the show notes, but there was um, that article, and I, obviously there's been a lot of talk about this topic, about yeah. like sort of like women's invisible workload of these types mm-hmm. of things, right? Like being kind of the mental holder of the lists, right? And yeah. like everything that you just said is such a perfect example. Like I remember when uh, – That article first came out. It certainly wasn't the first time I had thought about it, but sort of, Mm -hmm. because again, being socialized as a woman, we're not even really socialized to think about that type Mm -hmm. of stuff. It's just accepted. And I had this tiny, but like kind of profound for me realization that with pretty much all past partners, I was the one who made sure that like birthday cards, gifts, phone calls, like stuff for their families happened, Mm -hmm. right? For like the partner's families. And when I consciously stopped doing that, it never happened. And that I was like, oh, actually this, I don't, I don't have to do this, but I really, it's maybe this sounds like a silly example, but I felt really guilty. Like this person isn't going to get a gift because I didn't do this thing, but is it my job to do this? I don't know. It was like this whole little internal rebellion. (laughs)
0: I can totally relate because it's this thing where you're like, well, no, because, like, you should do that. But part of, like, it, it's exactly why as as women we trained our – well, for me, as a woman, I trained my partner to abdicate all of the shitty responsibilities to me because if he didn't care about it, then then it wasn't being – well, like, that person was going to go without. And so he wasn't doing it right, and so I would – step in when he wasn't doing it right. If he had just done that thing right, I wouldn't have had to step in and take the mental load. If I had just been less of a control freak and less of a like, well, it looks like your mom doesn't get a birthday card, then not my problem. She's your mom, not mine. Like, that would have been okay. If I like I looked at, you know, my previous relationship. And if I was like, I would be going out to work in the evening because I was a professional photographer so i'd go out and i would do like all right it would be a saturday and i'm gone to a wedding but i would like make all the meals before i left and like put them in the fridge labeled and like i was going to work he didn't make dinner or lunch or breakfast for the kids and put them in a fridge and label them before he went to work that day like why was it that i was doing that thing and it it really took a lot of like oh When I left my marriage, I left being like, because it's not working and we have a terrible marriage and you're making me feel like crap all the time and you don't appreciate me. And, you know, with some therapy, I was able to be like, oh, actually, those were my feelings of resentment that I created myself because he didn't ever ask me to do those things. It wasn't like I, I was so afraid of the conflict and I was so afraid to fail as a wife and as a woman that I... Made myself do things that he was never asking me to do to begin with. And then I trained him to expect those things and make him helpless. Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm.
0: And so I put a lot of blame on him that wasn't his.
1: Yeah, yeah. Something else that I wanted to ask you more about, um, you, again, I feel like a lot of this is referencing like the deep dive that I did in like a lot of your writing, which is all fantastic. Um, But you said something um, particularly about your divorce that really stuck out with me. Um, Something along the lines of like, that you wish you could have done it better, but you didn't because you just did the best that you knew how to do at the time. And that really stuck out because I think, That's such a common, whether it's divorce or something else, like, you know, however many years later, however many therapy sessions or coping mechanisms or whatever we've learned, it's easy to look back and say, oh, I could have done that a lot better. But sort of the recognition that you did the best that you could at the time and like giving yourself that grace. I don't know. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, I was really like, I was confused about who I was at the time, but I also for the first time in my life knew who I was and I wasn't willing To I was so afraid of like making that part of me small again and losing it that I sort of blew everything up. And I blamed my ex and I blamed our bad marriage and I blamed me being a lesbian and I I blamed a lot of things, and I think that I could have done them with a lot more grace than I did and a lot more elegantly. But guess what? The there's no like, I Googled, turns out you're a lesbian, you have to leave your marriage. You might be a man. How do you do that? And like, <laughs> where's the Wikipedia
1: n- page for that? No <laughs> hits,
0: right? Like, there's nothing. I like, there wasn't a guidebook. There wasn't anyone else who had done it before me to be like, hey, don't do this stupid thing I did, uh, or you know, don't, or do do this other thing. This is these this is the stuff that helped. This is when it got better. This is like hold out for this moment. That's when you're coming around the corner. Like there wasn't any of that. And I think. Um, I'm like, why is there so much self-help, but there's not a ton for divorce and there's not a ton for blending families either, by the way. So it was this big thing where I I had to say like, listen, there's no guidebook for this. And I screwed it up and I didn't do it as well as I wish I had. And it wasn't as full of integrity as I wish I had been. And yet here we are and I'm sorry. And can we be friends? And like, honestly, it was messy, but like, He's one of my best friends now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've uh, – it's funny that I, like, in my head keep making parallels to getting sober. And I don't know if that's just because that was, like, a big transition for me. But I, I think a lot about how sometimes during periods of transition – or change in our lives that have like a, where the root of it is like really deeply personal, whether it's like a changing identity or it's like a trying to forgive yourself of like shame things from the past that there can be a really common tendency to be aggressive in the process of making that change. Like that stuff, Mm -hmm. I was very like, you know, this is what I'm doing. Fuck you if you can't get on board. And now I would make that change so differently because I, I don't know, I just like have more coping mechanisms that I didn't have. And that was like the best that I could do at the time. And I know I like hear some of that in what you're saying too, that you were like, well, this is what's true for me. I'm terrified to lose this. So like you kind of almost like it's like a self-protection thing to have to be that rash.
0: It's like a caged animal. Like it, it felt like that intense. I think that like I had to break out of the cage, like, and it, it was destructive. I mean, it's not like I like lit anything on fire or left my kids or anything. Like it wasn't really that destructive, but like it, it wasn't comfortable. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the kindest way to do things. And I consider myself to be a super considerate person. Like that's like one of the traits that I think is most admirable in someone and I wasn't considerate. And so I look at it and go like, Oh, I could have done that better, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't have because it was so primal.
1: Yeah. And so sort of on the other side of that, what was the process like for you or anything you want to share about forgiving yourself for all the things you just said? Because I also think that it's common to, you know, go through something and maybe behave in a way that we wish that we wouldn't have and then kind of carry it with us in this like little shame pocket.
0: Yeah. I think honestly, I just have done so much therapy. Like I just am like the therapy ninja. I am all over it. I'm like, everyone should do therapy. I'm like, we. I have a therapist. My wife and I have a therapist together. Like like, yeah, we're, we're therapy junkies around here. I just think that like, and I, I'm a verbal processor. So talking about it really does help. I think that like just being like able to go what, okay, well, what would I have done differently? And did I like, can I look at it and go like, okay, I would have done this differently. How could I have possibly have known that in the time I couldn't have, there was no way that I could have. And just sort of looking at like breaking it down almost like logistically. What did I, what did I have actually have access to? What did I, what what was the best that I could do? And like seeing that, like actually considering what I had access to and how I was feeling, I really did quite well even yeah. while doing terribly.
1: Yeah. No, no, no. That that makes a lot of sense. I am also a verbal processor, surprise, and therapy junkie, surprise. So <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I can relate to that for sure. Um, you mentioned before, you know, kind of in the joking, like there's no, you know, like Wikipedia self-help thing for this. And you mentioned like kind of also that there isn't or there wasn't that for um, like blending your family. Mm-hmm. I'm interested, again, because that's something I have no experience with, either what some of the lessons were that you learned or, you know, if someone else that was really close to you was going through something similar, like any either stories you would share or like advice if they asked for it?
0: I think the biggest thing that I took away from like my divorce is that none of us are our best selves when divorce is happening. And so don't hold your partner to any or your ex-partner, I guess at this point, to any of the dumb shit that they say or think or let out because that's not who they truly are. That's like also their most afraid, scared, like terrified version, hurt version of themselves is too. And so I think often when people are getting divorced, they like have these big feelings and emotions or any conflict. People have these big feelings and emotions and they like have outbursts and then they people are held to those outbursts. And just like I, I wasn't my best self leaving my marriage. Um... You know, he wasn't his best self either and not to hold each other to those shitty spots. I think the other thing is that if I had been more honest and, and up front and less afraid to hurt him and like and just rip the bandaid off, it would have been easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so often we're afraid of conflict and we're afraid of hurting someone else that we don't tell the full truth. And if we had just told the full truth from the get go, it would have been easier.
1: Yeah, or rather it maybe would have been harder in the moment, but that actually winds up if your intention is to cause them less pain, that having the uncomfortable conversation as soon as like you know what that truth is, I think mm-hmm. can say yeah, which is much easier said than done, but I yeah. agree with that completely.
0: Yeah, I did the thing where I was like, here's half my truth. I can't I'm not af- I'm too afraid to say the full of it. And like it might have just been that I was too afraid to even believe the full of it myself. I don't know if I could have gotten there. But I do think that if I had been like been more brutally honest earlier it would have saved a lot of heartache.
1: Yeah. I think about this a lot about the sort of value and practice of telling yourself the truth and um, in doing my, I mean, obviously we're at the beginning of a new year and doing sort of my end of 2018 reflection, like the thing that I kept coming back to that I felt most proud of because it was definitely a really tough year for me was that I felt really proud of having told myself the truth all year. And I remember Hmm. a couple of years ago having the realization that a lot of the reasons that I didn't, or a lot of the times when I didn't tell myself the truth, it was because I thought that you know telling yourself the truth and then doing something about that truth had to be like the same step right that it's like well if I admit this to myself then like shit, I have to do something about it and recognizing that there can be space that like I can be honest with myself and then actually sit with it for a while and do something about it or not do something about it or share it with someone or not share it with someone and like opening up some space there really helped me to be honest with myself
0: uh I've it's so interesting how we are so the same person in some ways because I literally had a conversation with a friend once that I was like, I couldn't admit that I was gay earlier because if I had, I would have had to do something about it. And they were like, why? And I was like, because that's who I am. I admit things. I, as soon as I say something out loud to myself, I have to act on it. that's And they were like, you know, that's not like a real thing, right? Like that's like a self-imposed rule, not like a real rule. And I was like, huh. Tell me more about this yeah. <laughs> restraint you have. I don't know that. I have an addictive personality.
1: Yeah, relatable. That it, And it was it was tough. And like, again, I think of it as a practice of like opening up more space for myself. Like I can just let what's true be true. Okay. Yeah. You know, and it sounds, I don't know, maybe very simple now, but there was a time for me where that was like a like mind blowing revelation.
0: You're not wrong. I still, like, I have the hardest time when Catherine and I fight. She often, like, we have a rule that you if a fight is, uh, so we grade everything on a number system. So, like, if we're arguing about something, even if it's, like, dinner, we're like, wait, how, what number is this for you? And she'll be like, oh, it's a two. And I'm like, well, it's a six for me, so I win this one. And she's like, okay. But if arguing about something that's an eight for both of us or higher, we it gets a pin put in it and go, it goes to therapy. And that's the fucking worst. I cannot put a pin in an argument. It is like the hardest thing you could ask me to do as a human is to put a pin in an argument and not talk about it for like six more days when therapy comes.
1: Oh, Okay. There's, first of all, I'm incredibly interested in this number system and I would like to return to that in a second. But yeah, just to sort of underscore what you said, because you are certainly not alone in that. I feel really uncomfortable when things are unsettled. Uh, like it's like, I want to close the loop. I want to close the loop right now, especially if someone else is involved and it, it, thinking again, you know, about sort of the, I don't know, the like gender roles that I've played and taken on mm-hmm. right in like romantic and sexual partnerships. And like along the same lines is the getting gifts for their mothers. Right. Type of thing that I mentioned before. I also realized, and this was in the last like six or seven months that I realized that another role that I take on is, and this isn't just with romantic partners. I think this is with pretty much all of my relationships. Like the one who, I don't know. I like want to micromanage other people's emotional state sort of, or like
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I want, like, I put a lot of energy into like, is he okay? Does he need this? Okay. Like he's doing this thing. It would be nice for me to do like this thing to be thoughtful. And there's nothing wrong with any of that being thoughtful and considerate, as you said, is great. But like I've been taking on such a load of like, making sure the other person was okay instead of every just like
0: second of every day
1: every and it is exhausting yeah. and I'm not talking about like yeah if you fucked up <laughs> apologize you know whatever if they do need something be there for them but it's like I'm trying and it honestly feels like like ripping my skin off like trying to just be like yeah he's like in a mood or whatever and it has nothing to do with me and I'm just gonna leave it like it's it feel I like want to die it's so hard
0: you uh it literally makes me feel like like what I imagine meth addicts feel like when they need a hit. Like <laughs> like I feel like my skin is coming off. I can't – like I am itchy. I am agitated. I'm like, you're ruining my day with your feelings. And she'll be – and like it, it's, it's my kids. It's my wife. It's anyone. I really dislike the discomfort of someone being not okay. And we have a saying in our house that you have to like um, – you can have your feelings, but you have to have them in a way that is safe for everyone around you, safe and fair for everyone around you. And so like that's been a thing that like we've like had to put in because my wife is really big about people being allowed to have their feelings. And I was really good at shutting that down because it was so uncomfortable for me. And so like we've come to a middle ground of like you can have your feelings, children. You're allowed to have them. All feelings are valid have them in a way that's safe and fair to everyone else, which means like no throwing fits and no screaming at the top of your lungs. And if you need to do those things because you need an outlet, you need to go to your room to have those big outlets in a way that's fair to everyone else Mm -hmm. because it's the hardest.
1: Yeah. I mean, and just this idea of like taking responsibility for your feelings, which again, Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, to your point, it is easy to think oh, that could mean like stuff them down, right? Like don't, but I love this idea of feeling them, but doing it in a way that is like safe and fair to everyone else. And I've been thinking about it in, um, I've been over the last like year and a half doing some more research into, I guess, like less conventional relationship styles and non-monogamy and reading a lot about jealousy in the process and about um, like sort of this concept that you're saying, but like as applied to that is like The other person doesn't make you jealous, right? It's like the jealousy is yours and what are you going to do with that? And this idea of sort of taking Mm -hmm. responsibility for your feelings and a lot of that, I don't know, it's like pretty foreign to how I was raised.
0: It's very foreign and I think it's more – I think that it is a really normal concept for men actually. I think that men are much more capable of being like, oh, yeah, she's doing that feeling thing over there. I don't – no, I don't – yeah, I just – I'm just staying in my own lane. That's fine. Like, they're better at compartmentalizing. And I think it's because men have been trained that, like, oh, women are just emotional and that we don't bother with that. And women are trained that, like, it's our job to be tuned in to everyone around us to take care of their needs. Like, that is the social undercurrent of the patriarchy and the matriarchy. Like, that is that thing, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, this came up for me um last summer I was on a 3 month backpacking trip and I went out there alone and wound up making some great friends and, and kind of developing what's called a trail family, you know, where you wind up hiking, you know, with a little family, I guess, or like folks that become your family. Yeah. And it was a, you know, mixed gender group. And, you know, when like drama or things would come up, like I frequently found myself in the like, I don't know, like the fixer role. And I'm like, is this me putting myself in the role? Or, you know, I would have conversations, you know, particularly with one of the men in the group. And I'm like, how do you seem just like so not bothered by this? And he was like, well, I just figured it's not my business. It's not my problem. They'll work it out. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like, what are you saying? Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) You're like, but this is affecting the whole family. And he's like, I mean, if you let it. like
1: 100%, 100%, 100%. He's like, I just don't let it bother me. And I was like, literally teach me your wisdom. But I think you're right. Like, I think a lot of it is – or all of it is gendered.
0: It's just the way we're socialized. It doesn't mean that, like, that men can't care. Right. And doesn't mean mm-hmm. that they're not even, like, that their personality is one that is more caring or less. Like, there's a spectrum within that too. But it's just that, like, if you're taught, like, oh, that's – Women have emotions. They're crazy over there. They they have this time of the month apparently. I don't know. Like that's a thing that they're taught from like being a boy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And when I said it was gender, that's what I meant, like socialized, not like (laughs) (laughs) inherent. Um, So I want to go back to this number rating system. First of all, I'm finding as you're talking that I'm like, wow, I now my new secret dream that I didn't know I had is to just like, watch your family live their life. Because I feel like you guys have figured (laughs) out like so much stuff, obviously, through I'm assuming a lot of work trial and error, like you said, being therapy junkies. But so this tell me more about this, this number system.
0: So I will give the credit to our therapist, and we've asked our therapist, "Where did you find this?" And they're like, "I don't know. I know that it's not mine, though." So I, there's a, there's credit somewhere. My therapist, Mel Sanford, killing it on the number system. Um, But what it is is that it's like when we we were finding that when we first like moved in together and blended families that we would like one of us would ask each other's opinion on something because like, oh, I just want to know like how do you normally do this? How would you whatever? And we would like get in these arguments about like where to put the cutlery or like where in the fridge the milk should go or like what type of tea we should buy or like, you know, what day we should do. Like it's just stupid shit that didn't actually matter. And we were like, our therapist was like, before you get into these arguments, are you even like, are you arguing for the sake of arguing? It sounds like you're arguing for the sake of arguing and us being like, what do you mean? These are fundamental differences in the way we live our lives, and she was like, "Okay, like let's take where the cutlery, like where the pots and pans go, for example." Catherine, do you where? How does this feel to you? It feels, and she's like, "It feels like a six to me because I hate pots and pans because they're heavy, and if they're stacked on top of each other, then you have to like move one thing to the next, and it's just so hard, and I always hurt myself and whatever." And I was like, and "I had to sit silent and." Then the therapist was like, and Nick, where is this for you? And like, I was like, it's an eight because I do all the cooking. And so it makes sense that I want the pots and pans where I want them because I'm the one using them. And like, literally it was like that moment we were like, oh, so even though it's a big deal for Catherine, it's a bigger deal for me and I'm the one that's using it. So sometimes it'll be the thing where like, we'll be fighting about like what we were watching for, you know, or, uh. Like, a 10 for us is Catherine's, like, no spanking. And I'm like, okay, cool. That's a 10. It's Tens are non-negotiable. We'll end the relationship over them. And my 10 is no no hard drugs. I'm like, I don't give a shit about weed or anything like that. But, like, nothing that is chemical. That's my 10. Like, we both went into, like, we started our relationship. And she was like, just so you know, no, no spanking or hitting in my house. And I was like, cool, no hard drugs. Those are our 10s. There's places that are, like, you know... If we're in it, if we're both in an eight, then like, I can't even think of the time we were both in an eight, it might have been like, trying to decide where we were going on our vacation this past year or something, we went to therapy over that. And like, where were we going to go and what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and how we were going to negotiate the f- like extended family involvement and all of those things. Those are like, those are therapy things. Lots of the times we'll be fighting about something and she's like, Oh, I thought you just wanted my opinion on this. Like, if I have to have one, it's only a two or it's a one. But like you clearly have feelings about this. It's a six for you. It's all yours. So we sort of like we'll literally get – find ourselves in like a deadlock or in like some sort of – not even like a full spat but like a it, things will start to get tense and we'll just say numbers. And that will usually determine who makes the decision, how much say the other person has in that decision being made and if it's something that's even worth fighting about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the freedom – that comes from this idea of being able to realize like, Oh, this thing actually isn't that important to me. Yeah. Right. Like I actually can just let this one go. I I also, I mean so much of what you're saying and I'm really grateful for your honesty around your communication with Catherine, with the fact of like going to therapy over and over, because I feel like it really underscores something that I really believe to be true. This idea that like healthy and fulfilling relationships aren't an accident. Like, that right? you're doing this on purpose, right? It's not just yeah. like, oh, la, 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 we like wound up here, <laughs>
0: you know? Right. And and it sounds like we go to therapy all the time. And in the beginning we did, like probably the first 18 months of our relationship, the first six months of our relationship we went every week. Then we went like every other week. And I would see the therapist on my, like, so we would see her together every other week and I would see her on my own every other week. And then now we see the therapist like monthly, Mm-hmm. I mean, or and, when there's a problem.
1: And I, I think that that's important too because I know for me personally with therapy, one of my um, like points of resistance was, oh my gosh, if I start doing this, then I'm going to have to do this forever. And first right. of all, there's nothing wrong with that. Like Maybe that is true. And mm-hmm. also not always and not often this idea that you need different levels of support. And we're just using therapy as an example. There's lots of different support systems. But I think that this idea that, you know, you need training wheels at some times and not at other times, and that's totally fine. It can be like an acute thing where, hey, we need this support system. Like I think about it, the, you know, holidays, I think not uniquely for me are kind of a tough time. And so, okay, what I might need support wise during that time is different than what I need in the middle of the summer or vice versa for somebody else, you know?
0: Yeah, totally. I think also that like mm, the kind of therapy you do matters. So we we love um, the crucible method of therapy, which is the idea that you each argument pushes you into a fire and you, you come out of that fire changed. Whether so, like every time we have a big fight and I say fight like it's not really a, like whatever I'm loosely, but like whenever we're in a in that spot where we're stuck, it's like We have to decide to come out differently or we have to decide to separate like that. Literally, our therapist asks us all the time, like, okay, well, like, is this a given for you? Like, is this the land and like the line in the sand that you can't cross? Is this worth it to continue this relationship? And then we have to make decisions on that. And it's uncomfortable. But most couples therapy I find is like, oh, it's just that, like, you don't. Understand what each other is saying, and the truth is, is like what happens when I understand what you're saying, but I just don't like it.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And operating, I really, I don't know that I've. I mean, I've never been in couples therapy, but I, I, I've never heard it quite that way of like taking things down to the is this the hill you're willing to die on? Is this the line of the sand? Like, is the relationship going to continue or not? Right? Like, sort of taking out that assumption that like you're going to be together no matter what, forever, and uh, something about that like hasn't ever really felt. Great to me
0: because it's unrealistic and it doesn't actually happen and it's just a lie because fifty percent of marriages end in divorce. So to pretend like every like that's not the case and like you're just going to willfully put your head in the sand and be like we'll never get divorced. That's guess what? That's when the divorce comes creeping up. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and again, so this idea of like sort of keeping that front and center. What I'm, I mean, obviously, what I'm taking from what you're saying about this is like it's like a reminder that it's a choice, right? Being in this Mm -hmm. relationship with Catherine, having this, like the family structure that you guys have, like that that's a choice. And so each one of these things, like, is this enough of a reason for us to make a different choice? If yes, then Mm -hmm. what? If no, then what? Right. That it just, I don't know, to me, it like seems more logical and also more loving.
0: Yeah. And you make you don't get stuck in your like pig headed ways for the sake of like, there's so many times I think that like in my last relationship where I was like, Oh, I dug my heels in because I felt like I needed to be heard and seen in like, and this was the way that like I decided like this, you have to hear me and see me finally now in this one. And like, that wasn't even the one that I cared about. And so I was digging my heels in and shit that didn't matter. I was missing things that did matter. Like my chance to advocate for myself and the things that did matter. And Things didn't ever get any better. And I like now I advocate for what matters. I let go of the shit that doesn't. And our therapy, we don't go into therapy fighting about the same things anymore. Like we've learned the tools to f- Like we go to therapy now when we're fighting or like having problems with a different thing.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things, yeah, that I love so much about the, you know, numbering stuff example that you gave is because it's so tangible. Like I think oftentimes when people talk about therapy or about working on their relationship, that it's really abstract and obviously privacy is fine. Like that's great. Mm -hmm. But I think it's like these tangible things that like, there's no way that someone listening to this isn't going to be like, I'm going to try that. Right. So I'm curious, is there like one other thing that you'd want to share of like a specific system that you've put in place that really works for you?
0: the other super great system that we have it's not really a system as much as having an assistant and the reason that I say that is because everyone should have one I feel like um it's this class I had a real class block on it at first I was like this is ridiculous we can't have this but the things that we don't want to do that we would end up like resenting each other for doing we just pay someone to do so You know, neither of us want to spend the two hours every week grocery shopping for our family. And realistically, it's probably like because we have a family of seven. There's like the big superstore Costco trip and the like regular grocery trip and the like meal planning and all these other things. And like we could spend like so much time doing all of the running around and errands. And so like instead of doing that, we spend that time with our kids and we pay someone else to do it. And that sounds ridiculous, but – We pay a stay-at-home mom who is, like, so happy to have the money. She's doing all this stuff for her own family anyway. She gets to work exactly when she wants to when her kids are in school. If her kids are sick, she gets to say, my kids are sick. It's just like our groceries and errand running. It's not that, like, she could come the next day. It's totally fine. So we feel really good about putting back into the economy. Like, I know that our assistant, she's, like, the only way that – my kids all get to play hockey is because I have this job two days a week. Thank you so much. And so it seems like this ridiculous, ridiculous thing that we're doing, but like really it probably only, I think we pay between four and $500 a month. And I don't ever like when we don't fight over like crap, our kids have a birthday party on Saturday and you didn't get the present and you, and like, well, why is it my job to do it? Why didn't you do it? And like, you know, Feeling resentful of each other because I was out buying groceries for three hours today while she was like hanging out writing in her journal or reading a book or like none of that. We don't have any of those resentments because it's just built into our schedule and we get to spend more time with our kids. We get to make more money in our businesses because that mental load isn't there like, it just frees up so much space for $500 a month.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a lot in here that I think is is really interesting. It's funny that my first response, like, in my head as you started talking about this, I wanted to be like, you don't have to justify this to me. You can spend your money however you want to, right? And, but and, I had to justify it to me. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing that I think, circling back to what you were saying before, um, uh, you were mentioning, you know, money stuff and, like, uh, the being socialized into, you know, rich people are bad and, and sort of that that you were talking about earlier, that I do think it's really interesting to pay attention to in the realm of money, like what our blocks are, right? And does is this actually how I feel or is this how I was taught to feel, right? Like why do I have to go through so many mental gymnastics to hire an assistant? And you're, I think you're definitely not alone in feeling that way, especially yeah. for work that you could do, she could do, you know what I mean? And so getting to like, so I'm grateful. It's funny that my first response was like, you can spend your money however you want. And also I'm really grateful that you sort of talked that out, or at least like, you know, in a nutshell version, because I think that that's really common and, you know, being able to sit down You know, with yourself, with your kids, with your partner, whatever, and say, like, again, like, what do we need in order to, like, feel more awesome about our lives, to be able to, like, live Mm -hmm. more in alignment with what we want to do? What resources do we have to put towards that? Maybe it's money, maybe for someone else it's not, but it's time or it's, you know, extended family help or it's something just being able to, like, name what the solution is that would help. And maybe that solution is out of reach for now or for any number of reasons. But I think there's, like, something powerful about being like, our lives and our relationship would be better if we could pay someone that we like interest to do these things right in a fair way and there's just like something empowering I think about going through that process
0: and I think that you're absolutely right that it's like so empowering to go through it so empowering to like just be like oh actually like why do am I even having these things and like challenging your beliefs and then for this in specific I feel like actually in many of my beliefs now I challenge it by going like if I was a if I was a Like a man, which I am, but like if I had never had my experiences as a woman, if I was just a man, like if we were a gay male family and they hired an assistant to do groceries, meal prep, errands, dry cleaning, um, to get the kids birthday gifts and send out cards and do all of those things for three to five hundred dollars a month, no one would bat an eye because of course. But because there's a woman in our family, we can't.
1: Mm, because Because women are
0: expected to be able to do it all. And I look at it and I go like, well, there's no way because like I want to spend the time that I'm not working with my kids. And guess what? Like someone like we I like to work. I want to spend my time working when I'm working. And women are so socialized into like, oh, like I have a, I'm, I'm a work at home mom, which means that therefore I work a full time job and I am have the exact same responsibilities as a stay at home mom that's the things that like I see all the time or like people are like, I want to kill it in my business this year. And they're like, but I won't sh- hire childcare for my kid or any help at home. I like, and you're like, okay, I don't, I don't know what, like, like I talk about life math all the time with people. Like there are 24 hours in a day. You need to sleep for eight of them. You need to do something enjoyable for two to four of them. Like that's like to just bare minimum, you know, like, so what are you going to fit in the other hours?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm, I feel like I'm stuck in a good way, kind of like slightly mind blown about what you were just saying. Of like, okay, if we were, you know, a two male couple, right? Or like if we were a gay couple, and this happened. Like, I don't know why I've never really, th- I've never really thought about you, that before. Of you taking, wouldn't
0: give a shit, right? You wouldn't give a shit that they have an assistant,
1: and. Yeah, I'd like to think, I mean, I'd like to think that I wouldn't give a shit anyway. And these things are so deeply ingrained as far as like socialization goes, or like even the value of if you're like questioning the sort of takeaway that I'm getting personally from what you just said is like, if I'm questioning it, is this okay? Is this not okay? Right. Like if I'm sort of stuck in these like deeper patterns within myself of, yeah, like laying it on different people. Okay. If Mm -hmm. I were, you know, 50 years old, would I feel differently? You know, if I were a man, would I feel differently? If that, you know, just like thinking of it from different angles, I think can highlight what's your real feelings versus what, your socialized role is like that's fuck that's like very powerful
0: (laughs) mind blown right yeah it it really has changed like I often will ask myself if I were a cis straight white man what would I do about this and how would I feel about this
1: that is an excellent takeaway question I'm going to need like many, much more time to process this conversation that we're (laughs) having in a really good way. Um, So pivoting a little bit, um, thinking about the past year, I I know that 2018 was a big year for you and also sort of a mixed bag of highs and lows. And Mm. specifically, I've heard you talk about how your top surgery didn't go as planned. Can you share about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, um, so for anyone that doesn't know, us trans folk, uh, many times we have top surgery. Not everyone. Everyone's body is their own and different. And for me, um, top surgery felt super important. It is the act of like um, having a more male-appearing chest. And so for me, that was a double mastectomy. And the narrative around surgery for trans folk is complicated because... Um, it's really easy for people to take away our rights to healthcare based on like, well, if it's not a hundred percent perfect and everything, why are we even giving it to you anyway? And they'll use like, you know, the media has often used and like Republicans have often used our own words against us in certain areas. So it's like a somewhat tricky thing to talk about, but, um, so because you're supposed to just say it's perfect, but mine wasn't perfect is the answer, I guess, is that my results were slightly diff- like different than most because most trans men have not nursed four babies. Um, and so my wound footprint was like three times the size of the average uh, internal wound for a mastectomy. And I've just had like, I still go often to like have it aspirated because I'm retaining fluid after the drains came out and everything. And my scars aren't quite where I wanted them. And like, it just sort of is not how I imagined it. But in saying that at the same time, I mean, my top surgeons done like a dozen top surgeries total. And if I were to go to like, a gender clinic in Toronto, you know, there's a surgeon there that did 238 this year. So It's one of those like – it's hard. It's that like what do you do when you wait for a long time for this thing that's supposed to make everything better and then it doesn't go how you want it to. It's complicated and like devastating but also like you have to reconcile with that and not let it be pervasive and not let it ruin everything at the same time, you know?
1: Yeah, this idea of the fantasy of the thing versus the reality of the thing and sort of making peace with the oftentimes gap between the two I think is easier said
0: than Mm -hmm. done. And people don't want to talk about the gap in trans healthcare because we're afraid of what that means.
1: Yeah. So how long has it been now since surgery? So
0: my surgery was October 26th. So I am, I guess, three months-ish now.
1: Okay. Emotionally, how are you feeling about it?
0: Now I feel better. Um, So it is... It's one of those things where, like, before I was like 100 I was like negative 100% happy. And now I'm like probably 30% happy. So, like, it's a real, it's like an upper, you know? But it took me changing my perspective to look at it that way and be like, okay, I'm not done. It wasn't a one hit fix. It, like, I'll have to have a revision. That's just the way that it is. But, like, there's a lot to learn from that, too you know, Mm -hmm. and it is much better than it was before, and I'm still grateful for the surgery, and I'm grateful for my surgeon, and it's just just a journey, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that we're so, in today's society, we're so set on, like, the instant gratification, and it wasn't even instant, like, in the fact that, like, it took me three years to have top surgery from when I applied for funding, but like, It wasn't instant, but it I still wanted like the result to be instant, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not as simple as that. Yeah. There's a lot of messy middle.
1: I also think that we really want to categorize things as either like good or bad, right? There's this really sort of like black and white binary system of Mm -hmm. you know, like experiences and how experiences are classified. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately that Very rarely, I think, is that the case. Very rarely is something 100% good or 100% horrible. I think the reality is often, like you said, a lot messier. And maybe that's more challenging to talk about. Or maybe we feel like, oh, well, I should just be grateful for this thing or right sort of, again, the mental gymnastics that we do Mm -hmm. to kind of talk ourselves out of that like messy middle area. But I have found it even in like your choice to be really public you know like on instagram and sharing photos throughout the whole surgery process and like the Mm -hmm. post-surgery process and like speaking to this specifically of like i'm glad i did this and also i feel this way and it's good but it sucks and it's that you know like that i don't know there's just like something really human in like we have to make space for things to be like a both and like it can have been a choice that you're grateful for and also can be shit
0: right like and that's kind of the way i feel a little bit and i'm like that's that's okay but i think that the representation of showing that that's okay is important because everything that I had seen about top surgery was like, and then you'll come out and you'll be like a smiling unicorn and you'll feel like the world has got your back and like, you're finally who you are. And I was like, oh, that's not how I feel. So maybe there's something wrong. And then it was like, you know, as I was sharing that that wasn't how I felt, there were so many other people being like, that's not how I felt either. I just felt like I couldn't say that.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and so that was going to be another question Um, for you. I guess like I'm always curious in how people decide what to share and what not to share. So with like this specifically as you were going through this, was there any kind of internal dialogue of like how public am I going to be with my feelings about this surgery?
0: Yeah. It's. I definitely have a lot of internal dialogue on it. And I think it, it sort of a lot, and there's probably been maybe two or three posts that I've posted. And then like after like five minutes, been like, actually, you know what? That doesn't feel good right now. That wasn't, that was me sharing from the wound rather than the scar. Um, and so I'll just archive those because I want to see what the, po- like, there was definitely a point in sharing for me, but it was more a person, like, it was like a, a need to personally share rather than it's beneficial to anyone else. Mm-hmm. So I try and think of it as like, am I sharing from a wound or a scar? If I'm sharing from like an open wound and I'm just splattering my gross energy on everybody, I don't want to share that. I haven't – I won't share until I've healed from like – even if it's just like – it's just barely healed and the stitches are held and like, you know, the skin's starting to join up. But like that I find if I can get that spot where like it's just started to heal but it's not an open wound, that's where my magic is where I'm the most vulnerable and honest and useful.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. I think about that a lot. I feel the same way. And I think that – it seems like we have this in common i get to that point really quite quickly like i do share things in relatively real time and sometimes it takes me a couple hours to process Mm -hmm. sometimes things take longer but i think i'm more comfortable than most sharing things in real time just because of the speed with which i process through things
0: I would say that's accurate for myself, whereas my wife will often share a story two years later.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I find almost I I like need to share things in real time in order – or relatively real time in order for them to be true because I have a tendency to – I mean, we all – our memories are faulty, yeah. right? Like the way we rewrite things, like I can easily default into like – turning an anecdote into like something that's wrapped up with like a boat that for me as like a writer and storyteller, that's not where my power is. And so it's always yeah. interesting that like that's not true for everyone and sort of figuring out where you fit in that spectrum.
0: Yeah. And I think that I when I look at like when you say that, I'm like, oh, it's because it's true. Catherine is really good at like she wants to find the whole story and tell the whole thing all the way through and like be able to wrap it up and close it. Even if it has the messy bits in the middle, she likes to like have the whole arc of the story shared. And I think of it more as like, I'm just sharing this little tidbit and one day I'll gather all these little tidbits and put them together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, both approaches or any approach in between are equally valuable, but I think it is important to kind of sit with yourself and be like, where do I fall on this? And that's a a way to figure out how to share and not like constantly have a vulnerability hangover.
0: Well, you should know that I just had a real life processing of that right now. So I was like, great, I now know how I work. This is great. And, <laughs> in our verbal processing of this, I've come to determine that that's how I work. Cool. I love
1: it. I love it. Um, so you mentioned um, that one of the reasons perhaps that your surgery was a little bit more complicated was having you know nursed for babies and mm-hmm. i would love for you to tell a story that i know you've told before about the time that you mansplained childbirth to a yes. room full of women tell me this
0: story i have mansplained childbirth to a room full of women uh, so a couple of years ago we my friend um runs this thing called yeah field trip and it is like this cool like gathering of creatives photographers whatever and it's like they're all just hippies and they go off into the wilderness and do summer camp together and um so we're at this thing and i it's my first time going after having publicly transitioned into a place where i know like like wit is a good friend of mine and he's the organizer and i know him and i know like a handful of other people really 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 well and the other like 285 attendees i don't know at all and so like it was my first place that I ever got to just pass as male. And no one know. And so we're like, hanging out with these people, we're having this great conversations, people are talking about birth. I am a birth junkie. Like I am, I think it's the most incredible experience to like witness or be a part of or like I was a birth photographer for a while. Like I just am a birth junkie i totally could have gone back and been a midwife love it so i'm like in there in the conversation just listening and someone's like what i don't understand is it's like a woman who hasn't had kids they're like everyone talks about the head but like aren't shoulders bigger and i instinctively forget where i am and i'm like oh i've birthed four babies three of them naturally and one of them by c-section so like i know this and i'm like no no it's not that it's the shoulders are fine. It's like that once the head gets through, it's like the shoulders come through sort of in phases. It just sort of pops out. And this awesome Irish woman like was just like, Oh, you found that. Do you Nick? And I was like, uh, and everyone looked at me and like everyone, like clearly I had like overstepped and like, I was just this man sitting at this like room in this room of people, these women that were like, talking about things and two of my wife and two of the other women in the room knew me before trans transitioning and they everyone knew that like okay this is the moment where nick either outs himself to a room full of people or just takes one like a jerk that like ass looking guy that he is like you know like you just and i in that moment was like sort of like i couldn't i think if i had been braver i would have been like Actually, yes, I birthed more children than you, by fact. Like that's <laughs> so sorry to tell you, you only had one kid, you and your singleton. <laughs> like but I I was like I didn't know how it would be received. And it was like in a room full of people, and I really dislike that like look of shock and awe on people's face because it makes me feel weird about myself. And so I decided like and and I didn't want to like put her in her place either. Like she had just put me in my place. And as like now a person with the privilege of being a man, I didn't feel the need to like clap back, so to speak, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just took it. But I wanted to be like, actually, yes, in my research of birthing three children out of my vagina, that is what's happened. So I don't know what to tell you.
1: Yeah. I'm interested to hear – how you navigate if or when to tell strangers that you're trans?
0: So now I navigate it uh, differently. In the beginning, I it was such a thrill to pass, and I was afraid. I was so afraid to say it out loud that, like, I would I didn't even tell any of my friends in person. I texted them all because I was like, I can't. This is just too much. Um, and I think it was also because I'm such an emotional caretaker like we were talking about earlier, that I wouldn't have been okay with the split second of them not being okay.
1: Hmm.
0: And so to take care of myself, I let them have their personal reaction to it privately. Some of my friends are like, that was the stupidest thing. You're supposed to tell us these important things in person because we love you and we want to show you that we love you. And other friends were like, I can see that, like they understood. But now I'm not so nervous. I don't, I have no problem with being like, oh, I'm a trans man. I'm good like I there's if I'm safe if I don't feel like I'm in a situation where I'm not safe I don't really have a problem telling however if it's not something that like benefits the conversation like I don't say it just for the sake of saying it either Mm -hmm. it doesn't define who I am as a person however I feel like because I have so much privilege and I have like within this area that like I really want to be the advocate for it because I can.
1: Yeah. And I like this idea too that you're speaking to. You didn't use these words, so like correct me if this doesn't feel accurate, but you don't owe anybody anything also, right? Like you, exactly, it's yeah. up to you to choose if and when to share anything about yourself or not.
0: Yeah. And there's lots of times where I'm like, oh, like it doesn't behoove me to share this information. No one will benefit from this. I like, you know. Like I, I boulder and rock climb and the climbing gym, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you know that I'm trans, but I've never explicitly told anyone that I'm trans, but so it's just not a thing we talk about, but you know, a third of the gym and I are friends on Instagram. So they all know, but it's like, it's just not a thing we talk about because it doesn't really affect anything that we would be doing in our lives at the climbing gym.
1: Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you feel like your experiences, like being raised, socialized, and living as a woman makes you a better man, because I know that's something you believe. Yeah.
0: I believe it so intensely, and it's because I can hold space for my daughters and my wife when... They feel unsafe walking home in the dark because someone was walking behind them. I can hold space for them when someone catcalls them. I can hold space for them and advocate for them when someone looks to me for something that they should be looking to them for. I can, like, put a, I can see the difference between the water that I swim in and, like— I don't know. Like I can see all of the patriarchy happening bullshit that men can't see because it's just the only way it's ever been. You can't blame people for not seeing that there's water when they've lived in water their whole life. Like you can't, you can, it's their responsibility to educate themselves. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking any of the onus off men for being assholes. Don't, that's not at all what I'm saying. But like at the same time, they can't see what they can't see. Mm-hmm. And because I can see what they can't see, it gives me a whole different perspective, and it also allows me. So it allows me to like that perspective. Allows me to be a better man for myself. It allows me to raise my my sons to be better men. It allows me to like stand up and like say what's right and what's wrong, and and be able to articulate it in a way that doesn't feel combative. That like I also know what it like what it is like to be a man, and so the truth is, is that like, I've been harping on men a bunch, but like the men's house is just the house. It's like, it's the dilapidated house falling down next door to the women's house on fire. You know, like the toxic masculinity comes from things like, uh, we expect men to be strong and fit and providers and to impregnate and to make a lot of money and to have a big dick. Like the number of little dick jokes i hear in a day if you just stop and listen like i challenge everyone to stop and listen for a week and count in the tv the radio the ads the conversations with friends how many times you hear a small penis joke and it will blow your mind like there are so many ways that we have pushed men into this and then been angry at them because they are Mm mm-hmm you know, women still have rites of passage. Women still get their period. They still have a baby. They, they have these rites of, passion, of, of passage that are available to them. Not, and like not all women have periods and not all women have babies and not all women have lots of things. That I'm You know, that's also true. But there are still rites of passage built into womanhood and there are no rites of passage built into manhood except for humiliating other men. Like, that's what that's the rite of passage is like, guys get together in hockey teams and like make fun of other men or women. Like, that is, those are the only bonding experiences that men have, it seems.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this idea to, that I feel like you're um, speaking to of like the system is broken for everybody.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is much more beneficial to the men. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I mean, 100%, <laughs>
1: right? And nothing about what you said <laughs> makes it sound yeah. like you're not, you know, and yeah. Can you um, share, if you're up for it, some ways that you would love for cis, cis folks to act in allyship with the trans community?
0: Hmm. I would say that it's sort of like acting an allyship to any community feeling yeah. seen and heard is i think the most important thing so like you know there's this ban on the military thing right now so saying like i don't agree with this i don't i agree that trans people are full humans just like all other humans like and being people People have this idea, like, I was sitting at a table with friends once, and, like, my friend Morgan was like, how can we help? What can we do? And her husband was like, I mean, I don't think he needs our help. Like, gay people are just fine. And I was like, actually, this was before I was even trans. I was out as trans. I was like, actually, we're not fine. Like, I don't know about you, but, like, here are the six ways that I've seen something homophobic happen since we've been here today. And him be like, oh, I thought that, like, you didn't really – like, you guys got gay marriage now. What more do you need? And I'm like, really? Like, that's the thought? And I think that people think that, like, being an ally needs to mean that they go to a rally and they, they do all this stuff. But I think it actually just means that, like, you talk about your beliefs even if it's uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, to be honest, that's the, the reason that I asked is because I feel like there's – it's just an interesting conversation happening, you know, like you said, for lots of different communities and uh, mm-hmm. this idea of – acting in allyship being seen as this, like, I need a PhD to figure this out, right? And actually it's like just recognizing people's humanity. I don't know. know. Like, I I think it is not, which isn't to say that it's always, I guess, like you said, easy, right? Speaking out even when Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable, but there is something of like, we do know what to do. It's not as complicated as we think. I don't know. That's sort of where I've been. Yeah. I feel
0: like, I mean, mostly like vote where you, you believe that like like, you know, here there's a provincial election happening and it's conservatives versus not conservatives essentially. And, you know, currently for the first time in like 35 years, we have a non-conservative government in Alberta and people are like, like we're, the vote is coming and probably we will have a conservative government again. And it's like people who I know that are good people that care about me and my family are like, yeah, but like, economically it's better for the province. And I'm like, okay, but like literally this person is campaigning on getting rid of GSAs and outing gay kids to their parents and taking away trans healthcare. Like that is their campaign promises and platform. So like we're on more than just economics here at this point. Yeah, And I think people that are, that are like, oh, well, I give money to this ally thing. Or I, I believe in, I have a rainbow flag on my door and it's like actually what you What you do in your real life matters so much more than your stickers and your speaking up loudly at a rally. Like, I don't need you to do that. I need you to vote where human rights are. I need you to talk to your family members that might listen to you and have them talk about like, did you know that along with the economic policies, they also have these six other platforms that actually take human rights away from humans?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know,
0: I think that those conversations are going to get us way further than yelling loudly from a megaphone.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a a good place to start to wrap up. And the way that we end these conversations is with a series of community questions. So the Patreon folks who support the show, um, pick a series this season. It's nine questions where all eight guests of this season are answering the same nine questions if you are down to answer some random questions. So down. What's something that you've gotten better at over the past year?
0: Mmm. I have gotten better at being kind yet blunt. It's our it's our um motto, mine and Catherine's, is that we are going to be kind and blunt. But when we can't be kind, we're going to be blunt. <laughs>
1: Um, tell me the quick, like, origin story. Like, what was the conversation that you had where you were like, this is going to be how we operate?
0: Uh, I think that we were, like, fighting about something where if we had just both said our truths more crystal clear, we wouldn't have gotten into the fight to begin with. And we were like, holy crap, most of our fights are because we're trying to save each other's feelings. And if we would just be blunt, we wouldn't have had this whole meltdown.
1: (laughs) I love that. What's one thing that you have found challenging lately that something you've been struggling with?
0: Uh fitting enough hours into the day when you take on like so many projects that you're really passionate about and you want to do them all and they all matter the same amount and you're like crap how do I do it all
1: (laughs) and also you have five kids so sure exactly (laughs) minor detail um what's what's one thing that you love to splurge on when you can coffee any favorite coffee what's your like dream if I could drink this every day coffee drink what is it
0: so I I'm like super dorky that I am a coffee nerd and I do like my pour over with a recipe like I measure the grams of coffee and the gra- and the milliliters of water that go in with the amount of time. And so like, it's more about like having a lot of different choices of coffee like I probably have six different coffee roasts currently in my kitchen.
1: Sometimes I wish that I liked, I like the smell of coffee, but I really don't like the taste because there's something Mm -hmm. about like the ritual of it that seems really appealing to me. The
0: ritual is very appealing to me.
1: Yeah. Tell me about a time when you failed at something. It could be big or small, but, um, a failure that sticks out for you.
0: Yesterday I yelled at all my children. (laughs) Uh, so I got up at. The the 5.30 get up and it was a real hard one for me And literally at like 5.32 One of the kids came into the room And the next one came in at 5.37 And the next one came in at like 5.45 And then they all wanted something from me And then Instead of being like my great self I was like a crappy version of myself Where I was grouchy because I had gotten up so early To get work done and then like I didn't even get to do the thing that I wanted to do And I regretted it and had to apologize to my children <laughs>
1: When you are feeling stuck, what's one thing that helps you to keep moving forward?
0: Um, I exercise. It's like I'll go rock climbing. I'll take the dog for a walk. I will move my body.
1: What's one thing that feels really important to you right now? Maybe it's a goal or an intention that you've set or just something that you're intentionally spending your time and energy on.
0: Hmm. Like I think just advocacy work. I th- My big um, – is wanting like my big push this year is wanting to do more of that because it seems more important than ever in the trans community
1: and when you say do more advocacy work what do you mean
0: um like just speaking about being trans and what that means and what that looks like and that we're not so scary so um my rule this year is that i only go to the states uh as a place and you know based on some of the political things that are happening if i'm going to do some sort of advocacy work so i have two speaking gigs Um, in February and March and if I speak about being trans I will come and visit your great country and otherwise I'll stay away until it's a good safe time for me to come back
1: yeah um so the next question is about books which Mm -hmm. two or three books any type of book any genre would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often
0: Ooh, Um, I really love the book Tin Man by Sarah something Sarah it's a W it's a book um, about this relationship of three like a basically like a relationship between three people and how relationships can be romantic and platonic and both and everything all at once and it also is I believe a queer writer.
1: Okay, I'm definitely gonna check that out. That sounds super interesting. Any others yeah, that, that one, you wanna mention?
0: Another one I really, really was into um this year was Homegoing by Yaz. I don't remember her name either. I'm the I'm really bad at authors. I'll names. put it all
1: in the show notes. It's fine. Yeah,
0: um, but that is a book. I think it's the simplest, most beautiful story of intergenerational trauma that literally anyone can get. That is also like you can't stop reading it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll definitely – yeah, I've, I've heard similarly good things about that book, so I will add those to my list. Um, last question. If you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take?
0: Mm. Ooh, this is a good one. Uh, uh, I'm like, well, I'm trying to get all – like it's going to be really good. I don't know. I think honestly just questioning everything that you do and like why do you do it? Not in like a combative way, but like all the things that you just do on autopilot, sometimes just question them and be like, could there be a different way of doing this? I'm going to try it out. That I feel like the more I force myself to be flexible instead of rigid, the more fun I have and like ideas open up.
1: Yeah, I love that. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks?
0: My favorite is always Instagram because I am a visual person and I am at epic danger.
1: I will put links to that and everything else in the show notes. Nick, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much. Such good questions.
1: And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Carolyn. Hi, Carolyn. Hello. So we're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready.
2: I'm ready and excited.
1: What are you totally obsessed with right now?
2: Um I'm totally obsessed with my dog, I which I know that's kind of a lame answer, but I just rescued a new puppy or a new dog. he's about two a few months back, and he actually has a lot of anxiety issues, so I'm really like digging in and just have become obsessed with finding ways to help train him and nurture him and getting him back to this great dog that I know he can be that's and it's such a little all Yeah, it's a little all-consuming, but then, you know, some days it pays off and it just makes it worth it.
1: Yeah, I love that. What's one thing that you've been awesome at lately? Go ahead and brag a little bit.
2: Um, I feel like I've been awesome about connecting with people. I've really tried to make an effort in the last six months to get back to connecting with people in real life and stopping and, you know, not emailing them, maybe calling them or making a point to see them um, and engage with them in person. And it's made such a huge difference. It, it just makes me walk away feeling better and feeling like I get to know people a little more than just kind of on the online relationship that you can have with people.
1: Yeah, I think about that a lot. I'm someone, I guess, which is like maybe not popular of like millennials. I love talking on the phone when people are like, I'm not a phone person. That's obviously totally fine. But I'm like, can we have really long phone conversations? I guess that bodes well for my profession. But (laughs) yeah, I love uh, in-person stuff and phone stuff and that type of connecting too.
2: Well, there's just a lot of magic in actual conversation, like seeing how people react and then you react based on how you physically see them react.
1: Yeah. And I feel like it's also such a good connecting thing being able to like share an experience with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What's your go-to song when you need a mood
2: boost? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm kind of, when I need those mood boosters, I'm kind of into Sia. I don't know what, just any of her songs, they just, I, they maybe start out slow and just build up. Oh, but I'm also really, really, really into Maggie Rogers right now. Um, she, her album just released it, and I'm obsessed with it. It's been nonstop on my, in my ears this week.
1: I feel like I should make a playlist of people's answers from these questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's like such a good way to find new music. Um, for sure. What's one goal that you're working toward right now?
2: Uh, goal. You know, going back to connecting in real life. So um, part of what I, I do in my spare time is I help manage the um, local running community for the Wazelle team called the Volet. And kind of taking off of what I was saying in my personal life of connecting in person, I'm really, really striving to get people to connect in person on the team and also trying to create a space to make the team really feel inclusive and not just a team where we all look the same, we all run the same, we all act the same, but really finding a way to reach out to people and let them know, like, all faces, all places, we're all here doing this together. Um, And sometimes that's easier said than done. But I'm I'm really, really making a concerted effort to do that right now. Yeah, I love that. Last question. What's one thing
1: that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about?
2: Ooh, I'm kind of obsessed with um, people talking about aging. So I'm in my mid-40s, and I feel like it's really hard to find people that want to talk about um, athletic performance or what it's like to find a new job you know, all these things as a woman in her 40s that, you know, for so long, nobody talked about that. And now I feel like people are starting to talk about it more. Um, But there's still just not a lot of people that feel comfortable just talking about all the things you go through in your mid forties.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that topic. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I am super grateful. And I'd love for you to share why you decided to support the show and your favorite things since joining our community
2: um you know I sub- I really really feel strongly about supporting not just kind of women entrepreneurs but um kind of small business owners and people that are really stri- striving to make something that they believe in successful um and that's kind of when you went to the patreon mode um I was right there I was like no I have to support this this is a business that's kind of how I look at it um as a business that I have to support and I've just loved watching your podcast grow and develop. And each season, someone new comes out that I didn't know anything about. Um, I learn about new experiences, learn about different viewpoints of people. And for that, it's worth every single dollar that I put in every month or every season.
1: Mm, I love hearing that. I love that you're connecting with the guests, especially folks that maybe you didn't know who they were before or their lived experiences are really different from yours. I love hearing that feedback
2: yeah, that's a really big factor for me. It's like, Ooh, what can I learn about this time around?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me too, honestly, like I'm learning so much, like every episode, um, do you want to share where you live and maybe a social media link so people can reach out? Sure.
2: Um, I live in Los Angeles. I live right by the ocean. I'm extremely blessed and I like count my blessings every day for that. Um, and my, you can find me on Instagram and my handle is WeGinger. That's W E E G N G R.
1: I love it. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. That would be so much fun. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together.